Hey, Flaunt Squad. Welcome to another wonderful episode of Flaunt Performance Podcast. You can go to flauntperformance.com to pick up your laws of power for the voluptuous runner. That is a free giveaway that we have at flauntperformance.com. Go ahead and pick that up. I have a wonderful guest. I know I say that every single week. She is the author of Health at Every Size, and people really attribute the whole movement to her, although she points out that the movement was around long before she even knew about the movement, but she does have a book called Health at Every Size. And I tell you, when I first learned about Hayes, which is Health at Every Size, I did not have much of an understanding of the direction of the movement. But after I really started listening to Linda Bacon prior to this interview and over the last couple of months, I really started to gain an understanding. So sit back and listen to this wonderful conversation I had with Linda Bacon. Welcome to the show, Linda. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you. You are the superstar. <laughs> we we talked about this before the show started, but you are the superstar of health at every size. How does that feel? Well, I, I mean, I'm honored to hear you say that, but I also am aware that first off, I didn't even start the health at every size movement. I know a lot of people attribute it to me. But it was up and running long before I'd ever even heard of it. And there are so many amazing people that came before me. And there are some incredible leaders in the movement right now. And I think since I wrote a book with that name, I tend to get a lot of credit for the movement. That's undeserved. I mean, I'm doing something as one small part of a really large, amazing, amazing community. And um, it's really fun and an honor to, you know, be seen as part of that community. And I appreciate it. Why do you think Hayes is so polarizing? By polarizing, do you mean that people either like it or they hate it? Yeah. Or Yeah. Well, um, it's very threatening to people who believe that weight loss is the answer to everything. Um, I mean, think about, all of the healthcare practitioners, for example, who've been taught that all they're supposed to do is tell their patients to eat less and exercise more and they're supposed to get healthier and lose weight. And, you know, that's their training. And um, that's what they've been telling people. And, you know, they so health at every size kind of... And, ends up attacking the credibility of the healthcare institution because what we know from health at every size is that's just not true. So there are a lot of people that are really threatened by it. And also, you know, I think that I have a lot of compassion for how hard it is sometimes for people to be in larger bodies. You know, there's so many messages out there that it's not okay and there's something wrong with you and people don't get treated as well when they're in larger bodies. So I could certainly understand the drive to want a smaller body. And when health at every size gets perceived as saying that, that 
it can be really scary to people to, I suppose, um, confront the idea that the answer is not as simple as just eating less and getting smaller, right? But, and so I think that it can just be a threatening message. But I also know, and I'm sure this is something you can attest to, that once you learn a little bit more about it, it is so liberating. You know, you give up all of those false drives and you just start from a level of just appreciating yourself and then it becomes so much easier to enjoy your body to run to play to eat you know when I first learned about you and learned about Hayes period I just knew you were going to be some sort teaching some sort of quackery because there are so many people who've come out against Hayes. But then after listening and reading, I saw that what you're really saying makes so much sense. It makes a lot more sense than starvation and body shapers and shakes and all of those things. You're telling people to just learn their bodies and give them what they need nutritionally. And right. I, mm-hmm. oh. Yeah, and I should say that Honestly, I was skeptical of this stuff myself. And I'm a scientist, and so I decided to approach this scientifically to check it out before I, I wrote my book or got my platform. Um, and I didn't do that lightly. I got three graduate degrees, including a PhD, in all different sciences. Like, my PhD is in physiology. And so I've studied this from all different angles. And... It's it's very solidly evidence-based, um, whereas with the old weight loss messages, that kind of stuff, when you actually look at the data, you find that it's not based on science, that just because people keep saying it's true doesn't mean it is. So I always like to see when people can kind of switch the burden of proof, instead of just coming in and assuming that we're supposed to tell everyone to be thinner and we're supposed to tell everybody to eat less calories, to um, start from a base of examining the science to see, do we have any support for it? And when you start to look at that, you find that the support just doesn't exist. It's just a mantra that people have been saying for a long time. So, as you know, I, I I appreciate science, and it's also pretty exciting to see that the science also supports what we know to be true from a social justice perspective. That you know we need to just celebrate and honor diversity and difference rather than privileging certain kinds of bodies over others. You know, just like it's not okay that we privilege white people over people of color in this country we have to challenge the same thing in terms of size let's talk about that social justice piece how does social status impact our overall health oh boy you know it plays a huge role in fact even if you ask um government officials like if you went to the center for disease control website you would Um, see a graphic on their page that talks about um, what it is that plays a role in health. And what you see is that less than a quarter of the issue in health is individual lifestyle behaviors, like things 
like eating and activity. But that um, almost that about two thirds of it actually comes from what they call the social determinants of health. Um, things like how you're situated in the world socially. And if you start to look at the data, you can see that discrimination plays a huge role in health status. That when people are treated poorly in the world, it affects their health. And we can even see the physiological mechanisms for how experiences of discrimination add to things like cortisol release. That's a stress hormone in your body, which then does damage in your body and plays a role in increasing the risk for things like diabetes and heart disease. So if we really are concerned about the health crisis, and I use those words, um, I actually don't think that we're really having the health crisis that people suggest. I mean, we're actually living longer than ever before, and we're getting disease later in life these days. But my bigger point is that if we really want to tackle the whole issue of health, we would do a much better job by just treating people better in this world, giving them more opportunity, showing more support. Um, and that's going to be much more effective than getting people to eat more nutritious foods. Now, you just said there's no health crisis, um, according to you. Is, th is there really an economic burden of obesity? And are fat people going to drain the economy? Okay. Well, first off, um, health problems exist. I don't mean to d deny that, but more what I'm suggesting is that um, the idea that we're at epidemic proportions and it's getting worse, that I think is problematic. Um, but to get to your question of economics, um, I would suggest that probably the biggest economic burden is weight stigma, or at least that weight stigma exerts much more of an economic burden than weight itself does. And that, again, if we just treated people better, we'd be much more effective at um, improving people's health. And there's a lot of interesting ways that we've looked at this. Um, like, I'll just give you an example of one study that I thought was kind of interesting. They asked people the question of how much do you weigh right now and what is your ideal weight? So from that question, you could get at the idea of whether this person felt like they were too fat and there was something wrong with that or whether they felt like they were okay. You could also measure, they also gathered information about their height and weight so they could measure their BMI and then figure out whether they actually fit into that category called overweight or obese, those categories. And essentially what the research found was that when people felt like they were too fat, they had high incidence of disease. On the other hand, if they felt like they were at the right weight, then it didn't matter whether they were in the obese category or not. They experienced much better health. So... That's kind of, you know, one tiny example of a way that we look at this issue. And what we keep coming up with again and again is that things like feeling too fat or 
telling people they're too fat seem to play a much higher role in why people end up um, getting sick. You are, it sounds like you're talking about we need to overhaul the whole system because if the marketing companies stop telling people they're fat, how exactly are they going to make money? Um, you're right. And I'm not getting wealthy doing this work because I've got nothing to peddle. Um, on the other hand, you know, if you start a weight loss program and, you know, you sell people all of your different um, calorie packs and, you know, juices and all these other things, you can make a lot of money off of that. But my message, which basically says that um, people just need to trust themselves rather than me or an outside expert and, you know, that you come packaged with all of the information you need to help support you in nourishing your body well and um, having the best health that's possible, you know, given your context, um, yeah, you're right. Nobody makes money off of an individual believing in themselves. Now, you mentioned just a few minutes ago about really trusting yourself. I think that we're in an environment where we use a lot of things to numb our pain, whether it's food, drugs. How do we get beyond that and start to really trust ourselves and give our bodies what we need? Right. Well, I think it really starts from a pretty basic level of that. We all need to learn skills that help us to just better take care of ourselves, right? And um, I'll give you an example. This was something that was um, kind of funny. When um, my son was younger, um, we had just had a party at our house. And there was tons of food at the party. And everybody left the party. And there I am opening the freezer door, taking out the ice cream. And my son comes up to me and he said something like, Mom, you cannot possibly be hungry. You know, you just we just had that party. There was all this great food. And he just looks at me and he says, what's really going on? And <laughs> that was like an amazing question because, you know, what my son got me to recognize in the moment was, yeah, I was feeling a little bad. You know, I'd gotten into a disagreement with a friend at the party and um, I was feeling uncomfortable. And... Um, you know, my son's question had me stop and recognize that ice cream wasn't going to solve the problem. And what I really needed to do was check in with my friend and resolve the problem that way. And those are basic skills that I think that we all need to figure out is how do we best take care of ourselves? And a lot of people don't learn those skills, you know, at a young age. Some, some people do and some don't. Um, but we can all keep improving our ability to nourish ourselves, right, and to figure out what that means. And sometimes, you know, what we need is food, and that's what's going to best take care of ourselves. But for some people, food is the only way that they know to take care of themselves, and they don't have those other skills like the um, ability to rely on your friends and talk to your friends when you're having a hard time or... Um, you know, the way other things that they can do. And so they turn to things like food or drugs or alcohol. Um, and again, 
you know, I think also think that that's very human, that um, we have a hard time sitting with emotions and soothing ourselves. And it's part of just this whole task of humanity to keep improving our skills, to be able to manage our worlds better. We're talking to a group of people who are athletes. Can our organs and joints really handle 50 to 100 more or more pounds of extra weight? It's a good question. I know because things like joint problems are usually blamed on higher weight. Um, and first off, I know that you've got a lot of runners in the audience. And um, I, I'm somewhat of a runner myself. I love running. But right now I'm going through one of my many phases where I'm actually not able to run because I'm having too many problems with my knees. And I should say that I'm actually fairly slender you know my BMI puts me at the low end of the normal range and so um, I went to my orthopedic surgeon to try to figure out what's going on with with my knees and basically it's the um, I just have I'm kind of genetically set up where my knees just can't take a lot of pounding and so all of the running kind of caused an overuse in, in injury and Running's just not a great sport for my particular body type. Now, when the orthopedic surgeon was telling me what to do, he suggested things like stretching and strengthening and eventually surgery. And all that stuff was helpful, good advice. Now, my father, on the other hand, had the exact same knee problems that I did um, because it's a genetic issue. Um, but my father was much heavier than me. When he went to an orthopedic surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon said to him, lose weight. Now, um, my father had spent his life um, battling his weight. And that advice that he got from the surgeon basically just triggered all of his eating disordered behavior. It didn't help him to lose weight. It certainly didn't help his knees. And he went to his death with knee problems. On the other hand, my father could have benefited from the exact same advice that I got, which is stretching and strengthening so that his body could better adapt to handle um, his, the stresses put on it. Um, and surgery was another thing that was possible. But because the surgeon only saw fat and basically only thought that let's blame everything on fat, and weight loss is the only solution, he wasn't able to give my father good treatment. And so, you know, my father had knee problems. But what we find is that different bodies are um, capable of doing different things. And um, if you find that, that running works for you, go for it right? And if you find that you're getting knee problems, you could look and you can try to strengthen your knees and see if that helps and um, allows you to do the sports that you like. But I think we need to stay away from the blanket idea that you can't do certain things. You can try. And sure, you're probably going to find that for some people, um, running's just not the best sport for them, just like that's true for me. How do we prevent ourselves from being triggered by doctors and health professionals? Oh, man, I know that's a really hard thing because we're supposed to trust that our doctors are the 
experts, and they have a lot of training that could be valuable in helping us, you know. So ideally, it would be nice if we can find ways that we can partner with them so we can pull on their expertise um, to support us in um, leading the good life. But what we know is that um, just because they have a medical degree doesn't mean that they've got the training that can really help with um, some issues. And um, particularly around weight, that doctors are not getting trained well to learn how to support patients. So I think one thing that's really helpful is, first off, do your research before you start with a doctor and try to make sure, try to find out whether they've been exposed to health at every size and are supportive and that, you know, they've gotten a, this, a good education. Um, so you can interview doctors before you meet with them to find out what their stance is and whether it's going to be safe. And then also you can arm yourself with the information to kind of protect yourself. One of the things that I've done and um, is write, I've written letters that you can bring to your doctor that can help them to see that, you know, you want to take the best care of your body and that for you, weight loss is not going to be the answer and this is what the doctor can do to partner with you. And there's just simple letters that expose the doctors to new ideas and help them to be able to work with you. So you might find that maybe you don't have confidence standing up to your doctor by telling them they're wrong from a medical perspective, but you can supply them with some of the information that me and other people who are well-trained and have credentials behind us that allow doctors to hear us sometimes a little bit better, um, you can use us as support. So if you go to my website, you'll find that I've prepared tons of supportive materials that you can provide your doctors with. In fact, in my first book, Health at Every Size, in the appendix, um, you'll find all of um, a lot of letters that you can bring to your doctors and your fitness trainers and teachers, etc. And all of this stuff is freely downloadable from the book's website as well. But yeah, I know, it can be intimidating. We're supposed to trust them as the experts, and lots of times we're better educated and help us to take care of ourselves than our doctors are in some ways. And it can be hard to assert ourselves and protect ourselves in that. Yeah, that's true. Linda, how did you become so comfortable with your body? Oh, well, it didn't come easy. Um, and in fact, that's why I got into this work. I got into this work because when I was younger, um, I thought that I was too fat and there was something wrong that with being fat and it triggered an eating disorder and a lot of pain. And I started to do this work basically, well, I I started to study all of this basically to save myself. And that's why I got the education that I did. And through the process of it all, I came to understand that, no, it's these ideas we have about weight that are really messed up and it's not my body itself that's messed up and it was really powerful for me to recognize um, that um, I, don't, 
don't have to buy into what the culture tells me. Um, but I can't say that, um, I, I don't want to make that out to be something that's just an intellectual process where you just understand it and then suddenly it's easy because it's not. You know, it also involved um, finding supportive community, um, banding together with other people and recognizing that um, that a lot of people are in pain. It's not just me and supporting one another on this. Finding role models of people that had bodies like mine that I admired. Um, and it's an ongoing process. And I think that weight is one particularly challenging way that we go through it. And there are a lot of other ways that we all go through this. You know, like, for example, um, people of color who are given the constant message of their inadequacy and that there's something wrong and how hard it is to kind of come to a sense of reveling in your racial or ethnic identity, um, even when you keep getting the messages outside that um, there's something wrong with you and there's clear ways in which you're disempowered in the world Mm. by it. Um, But again, it's like, this, as we keep mentioning, is a social justice movement that we have to recognize that it's not a fair world and we need to keep building up our skills to live in a world that doesn't treat us as well as we'd like, as well as um, try to destabilize that world and make it a more just place where people are treated with respect. And incidentally, that's why the title of my second book, um, it's called Body Respect, And it's a blueprint for how we do that. Why shouldn't we use the word obese? I'm not comfortable with it because for a number of reasons. One is if you look at the derivation of it, it stems from um, this idea of people eating too much. And we don't have any data that people who are in that BMI category called obese actually eat more than anybody else or that they're eating too much for their bodies. But also because it's a medical term that that implies disease and pathology and um, it's stigmatizing. So I think that I, I don't want to pathologize and medicalize people and Instead, I would rather just find words that are descriptive that don't carry all of the pejorative medical connotations. And I know that there's a lot of debate about what words to use best, and I want to just encourage people to figure out what their comfort zone is. You know, like I know you've used the word voluptuous before, and that's certainly one Um, word that kind of gives it a positive and celebratory twist, and I appreciate that. I also appreciate there's a huge fat acceptance movement that's happening now that's um, taking back the power of the word fat so that um, it doesn't have any pejorative connotations, but it's just a descriptive term that's just, just talking about somebody's identity. But I want to encourage people to get away from the stigmatizing terms and to find terms that help to support them in feeling good and just owning their bodies. 
Do you think that people trust you more because you're a slim person? Like if you tell a, if a fat person were telling us that it's okay to be fat, would people even believe them? Absolutely. And I find that so sad that I get so much power because I'm thinner. And yes, many times I've seen this happen before where heavier people say the exact same things I do. And they're just not treated as respectfully. And people are basically saying they're just trying to rationalize their size. And and I find that very sad. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm such a strong advocate activist on these issues is because um, I think it's important for those of us who do have power and privilege to figure out how we can use it in support of the communities that don't aren't able to get heard and at the same time to figure out how we can support people in getting a platform for being able to say these things because, you know, it's not okay that people trust me more because I have a thinner body. Um, And I also want to say, though, that um, there's some ways in which I don't have as much power. So in that, um, I think everybody needs and appreciates role models. And I'm not that. And sometimes it's a lot more effective to for audiences to see heavier people saying what I'm saying because it helps them to just kind of see, hey, you know, there's other people of my size that are, you know, role models for these beliefs. So, you know, so I guess what I want to say is that in some situations I have a lot more power to say these things and I'm given a lot more respect. And then in other situations, Situations, it's really clear that my words don't carry nearly as much meaning. And, um, you know, so I think it's really, really important that we keep, uh, that everybody work to, number one, in your points where you're given more privilege in the world, you have to be a good ally for the people that don't. And in the places in which you're marginalized, you need to also speak up in support so that other people can hear more marginalized voices. And that's also going to give everybody more power. You said as social status goes up, bodies tend to get thinner. And I found that to be extremely interesting because in the black community, people think that we don't have much pressure when it comes to body weight. But that's not true because you have the pressure not to be too, quote unquote, fat. And you also have the pressure not to be too, quote unquote, skinny. So when rounder black celebrities gain more celebrity, they seem to get thinner. Like Beyonce got thinner, Tony Braxton got thinner. Do you think wealthier people are under more pressure to be thin? Being thinner gives you more power and privilege in the world, and people tend to pay more attention to you. And uh, I definitely think that's true. Well, it's it's sad, and I think, and I I, I mean. I want to just honor, too, another really important point that you're bringing up, and that's that um, the idea of intersectionality, that we all have multiple identities, you know, that being fat doesn't affect everybody the same in the world. It means something very different if you're in a white body versus a black body, for example. And, you know, the pressures and how people treat you are different based on all of the other things that go on in your life. 
Why is BMI more based on politics than real science? Like who wrote these BMI standards? The truth is it's the pharmaceutical industry that wrote the BMI standards. And, um, I just find it appalling when you trace back the history of it all. Um, and that question kind of brings up a really pivotal time in my career. If I could take you back to um, June of 1998, which was when I was working on my PhD in physiology. And that's when I was studying body mass index and weight and health, which was the focus of all of my research and education. And um, I read in the papers that um, suddenly the BMI standards had gotten lowered. So now 29 million people became obese overnight, you know, like the day before they were in a category called overweight or normal weight and overnight because they'd lowered the standards, all of these people got bumped up and now they were in categories that were, you know, now if they were normal weight, they might've been bumped into overweight or if they were overweight, they might've been bumped into normal weight. I'm sorry. If they were overweight, they might've been bumped into obese. Right. And I was just shocked. And, um, so I looked to see who was involved in making the decision. And I found out that the leading, one of the agencies that um, advised the government in terms of what their decision should be around this was the National Institute of Health Obesity Task Force. So I considered who I knew on the task force, um, and I, I actually did know one person fairly well, and I called her up and I asked her, why did you make this recommendation? And it was kind of funny because she just kind of said, Linda, you know, I've been standing by the phone waiting for you to call me because I knew you would be so irate. Um, and the reason she knew I would be calling is because she was my PhD advisor at the time and she was considered to be a leading obesity researcher in the whole world. And, you know, and she knew that I was um, studying all of these issues at the time. And she just kind of laughed and she said, um, I'm supposed to be training you to be able to be on panels and make these decisions yourself. So why don't we just pretend that you're on the panel instead of me, and I want you to um, submit to me a paper that looks at all of the major research you think we should consider and interpret it. And I did that, and I handed in my paper to her. And, of course, my paper basically, well, my paper basically came to the conclusion that we should actually lower the BMI standards rather than raise them like they did. And she saw my paper and she just laughed and she said, you know, you're ready for your PhD now. This is basically, you, you found the exact same studies we did as being important um, and you did a great job. And I said, but I don't get it. I came to the exact opposite conclusion. And she said, no, you know, what you did was a good read of the data. That's what we suggested to the government. And they basically said, um, no, we'd rather be consistent with international standards. So in the end, we didn't go based on data. The government went based on um, just this idea of international standards. So I then decided to be an investigative journalist, right? And I, I thought, well, let me just try to trace this back then. And what's going on on an international level that people came to that decision? And um, it was mainly the... Um, the World Health Organization. 
And so I contacted them and I asked them who um, made, who was their recommending body, and they named the International Obesity Task Force. I'd never heard of them, but I looked them up, and what I found out was they're a private organization that, for the most part, like the two largest funders were the two pharmaceutical companies that had the only weight loss drugs out on the market. So essentially, they made a lot of money off of that decision because now a lot more people were going to be designated as obese and then told to um, take their drugs. So that's the history of what happened in 1998 around BMI. And when I learned all of this stuff, it really just made me aware that something is really, really wrong. And it really changed the direction of my career. And it made me want to be an advocate on these issues and the truth teller who's going behind the scenes and telling these stories. Wow, wow. Why should BMI, why should have been lowered instead of being raised back then? Because basically, we're not seeing increased disease risk um, at those levels of BMI. And in fact, it's kind of interesting. What we're finding is that people in that overweight category actually tend to live longer than people who are in the normal weight or so-called normal weight category. And people that are in the category called obese are living at least as long as people in the normal weight category. So when we actually look at the data, we find that there's really no reason to be to have lowered them. And another issue that we find is that with some diseases, well, it's certainly true that they're more common among heavier people, we can't always blame it on their weight, that, um, that there are other things that play a role. Like, for example, earlier I was talking about discrimination. Um, people are in heavier bodies are more likely to be discriminated against, and that could explain why they get type 2 diabetes. Um, and so, you know, we have to, just because diseases are more common in certain groups than others doesn't mean that the thing they share in common is the cause. So we really need to be stronger scientists about this and stop blaming everything on weight and um, look at people just more respectfully and just recognize that um, improving opportunities, taking better care of people and um, treating people better and that people, individuals, can nourish their bodies better and take better care of themselves. All of these things are we need, we need to start addressing rather than just focusing on weight. So I don't want to say that weight doesn't play any role in health, but what I do think is very supported by the evidence is that its role in health is greatly exaggerated, and attacking weight is not a good solution to the health problems anyway. Linda, thank you so much for joining Flaunt Performance. Please tell us how we can get in contact with you, follow you on social media, buy your books. Just go ahead and give a shout out to yourself. Okay. It's a pleasure talking to you. And um, really, you know, I, I'm so admiring what you're doing with this podcast and um I just love the fact that your community has come together on these issues. It's wonderful. Um, so 
If you head over to lindabacon.org, O-R-G, um, you'll basically um, get situated. You'll find links to learn about my books. You'll find about all kinds of educational videos that I've done. You'll find a way to get on my newsletter. And um, I'm on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find links there. So um, just join the community, please. Thank you so very much, Linda. Take care. You too.